Well, hey, if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're into Ephesians chapter 5. If you're just joining us, we're going through the book of Ephesians right now. We have just a couple of more weeks left. We will finish in Ephesians on December 25th. Today, though, we are into Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. So with that in mind, if you would, grab a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of those blue hardback Bibles in the room and uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. I think it's a page 1,161. Is that right? Anyone have a blue Bible? Is that right? 62. 1,162. I'd love for everybody to have a copy of God's Word in front of them. Also, college students back on Thanksgiving break. Welcome back. Welcome home. It's great to see you all. Uh, With that in mind, let's hear God's holy and inerrant Word. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated and keep that Bible open as we pray together as God's beloved people. Uh, Father, we love you this morning and we thank you for the grace of the gospel that as we err and stray, you are always faithful to us. Lord, as we study your word in Ephesians, Lord, would you give us new ears and new eyes and new hearts to be open uh, to the teaching of your word. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would be at the heart of every marriage, and Lord, that you would be our hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, who do you think should care? Who do you think should care? Who, I mean, if you look down at Ephesians chapter 5, 22 through 33, I think most people would acknowledge these are some of the harder words for many of us in the book of Ephesians. So let me just begin with, who do you think should care about these verses? Are these just old, outdated, you know, platitudes that Paul is offering us? Who should care? Do you care? Well, I think if we were to look around in our church, in any church in America, I would imagine there are people in difficult marriages. No one says amen. Good job. (laughs) Way to go. You pass the test. Yeah, we have people in difficult marriages. We have people in delightful marriages. Amen. Yeah, some of us are happy in marriage. Uh, We have young adults excited about the prospect of marriage. We also have widows and widowers who are mourning the loss of their spouse during this season. We have marriages on the brink of collapse, and we have marriages that have failed. We also have some marriages that just recently started, and we have some people who are engaged, and we have some people who are going to be married in just a few weeks in our congregation. So with that vast array of people, either hopeful about being in marriage, happy, mourning in their marriage, what all these states are, 
what are we supposed to do? Well, I want to suggest to you that I want to tread lightly on this topic, uh, but I do think we have to be clear also at the same time with what Paul says about marriage. Uh, But also, I want to suggest to you who should care about this. I want to suggest to you that it's actually each one of us, whether we are married or single. In fact, uh, Paul says in Ephesians 5.32, look down in this passage in Ephesians 5.32, Paul says this mystery of marriage is for everyone. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So that means, Christian, that marriage is something that pertains to each one of us, whether we are married or single. And of course, if you are single, don't forget Jesus was also single, as was Paul. You are not lacking anything. But just because you're single, that doesn't mean that you are not supposed to have a vested interest in marriage. Or let me say it this way, who should care? Every single person listening to me right now. But let's be honest for just a second. Let's be honest for just a second, because I know what you're all thinking. You're all thinking of all the reasons why this doesn't say what it says or doesn't mean what it means. Let's be honest. How often can we recall the things that we've heard husbands say negatively about their wives? Who here hasn't heard a husband complaining about his wife? Or who can't imagine a wife complaining about her husband? We've all heard spouses complaining about each other. Or let me ask it another way. Uh, Have you ever been to a wedding and thought to yourself, I hope it works out? Preach to somebody. But just consider, friend, how sad the state of our marriages is. That when we see people get married, that's the thought going through our mind. I hope it works out. Yet, what I want to suggest to you, and what Christ is suggesting to you, in fact, commanding you to believe and understand, is that marriage is one of the greatest gifts that God has given humanity. It goes to the very beginning of all things. It's literally in the first pages of the Bible, Adam and Eve. Marriage is one of God's greatest gifts to humanity, but it is often mired by sin and hardness of heart. So with that in mind, friend, what hope does the good news of Jesus Christ really offer to us today? What hope as we remember, the hope candle does the gospel offer to our marriages. Friends, what I want to suggest to you is that if you are married, uh, this passage is like a tuning fork. You know what a tuning fork is? A tuning fork is like a little piece of metal, and it tells you whether or not you are in tune or not, right? Do you, do you like it when you can hear someone singing off-key, you know? It drives you crazy. That's probably why many of us don't sing at church, is because we know we're just perpetually off-key, Right? A tuning fork is a way of showing us what a true note sounds like, and it's a way for us to get in tune with the Lord. So if you're married this morning, friends, this is just a tuning fork. This is a reorienting of the melody of your life, the rhythm of your heart to what God has designed for your marriage. Of course, if you have a failed marriage, this may feel like an autopsy knife that is revealing to you what went wrong or what is going wrong. And if you're single or young and looking forward to being married, or if you are engaged, uh, friends, I want to suggest to you that this passage is a guide for you. It's a map showing you what to look for as you yearn to say, I do. But of course, you know, as we also dive into this passage, I have to give not a disclaimer, but sort of a truth in advertising. And that is, as you've gathered here in the church, we come to every topic in our life, every topic in our life in a Christocentric way. What I mean by that is if you are a born-again Christian, if you are baptized into his name, if your sins have been forgiven, there is no realm of our lives of which Christ is not Lord. 
every area of our life, Jesus Christ declares mine. So whether it is our job or the way that we parent or where we vacation or how we treat our money or how we treat our spouses, everything in our life is radically changed by the fact that God became a man, he died for my sins, and he is alive again. And my great destiny and your great destiny is to be reunited with him. So everything about the life of a Christian is radically oriented towards God, including marriage. And so when we gather as Christians and we study marriage, it's always with Christ Jesus at the center of everything. So what that means is marriage is not just about emotional fulfillment or romance or physical attraction uh, or finding a person that completes you. I hope all of those things are true. I hope your marriages are emotionally fulfilling, romantic, and you are physically attracted to your spouse and, you know, the person completes you in some way. But what I would suggest to you is as we engage the topic of marriage as Christians, we do so so that we would help one another become more holy or to put it in a different way to become more like Jesus. What I'm suggesting to you, friends, is marriage is radically God-oriented. Look down at Ephesians chapter 5, then, and let's see if you can see this in the passage. We're going to look first at wives and then at husbands. And if you can notice right there in your passage, there are three verses pertaining to wives and about nine pertaining to men. Really, there's about eight in the last verse. Verse 33 is sort of a summary. So we'll see that Paul spends primarily most of his time telling men what to do. All right, so let's look at the first section about how wives are called to submit to Christ in their marriages. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So obviously the first thing we need to talk about right here in verse 22 through 24 is that word submission, submit, right? This can trigger many of us, but let us never forget that we are all called to submit, right? If you are a Christian, we submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Looking at verse 21, right before our passage, if you're looking at Ephesians 5 verse 21, Paul says that submission marks every Christian in some sense because we all submit to Christ and we are all called to serve one another, Look at verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So submission is not something negative. It's not saying that women are inferior. Far from it, what we are called to do is sort of fall into rank like an army. That's what the word submission can also mean, is you're organizing yourself under command. And if you are a Christian this morning, we are all called to submit to whom? To God. Also, you know, it may be helpful to say what, is submission, what submission is not and then tell you what Paul does mean by submission. Uh, Paul is not saying that men are allowed to intimidate, to dominate, or control their wives. Notice all throughout this passage, what is the standard for men? Christ's love for his bride. He shed his own blood for us. Christ does not intimidate, dominate, cajole us. It's self-sacrificing love. So there's no room for men using this passage to mean silly things like, this means I get to control the remote. <laughs> Submit, wife. And of course, I know we could spend the rest of the afternoon in all of the egregious ways listing them out of how men have abused their leadership role in their families and simply fallen into patterns of abuse or passivity or non-existence. 
But friends, this is not what Paul has in view. Paul is talking about a distinctly Christ-centered view of marriage, where husbands love their wives as Christ loves the church, and women follow the spiritual example of their husbands. Both parties are all in. Notice also in verse 22, who are wives called to submit to? It is not men in general that women in general are supposed to submit to. Who are women called to submit to? Specifically their own husband. So Paul is not saying that women are less valuable than men. Uh, Far from it. We know as early as literally the first pages of the Bible in Genesis. In Genesis 1, it tells us that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So from the very first pages of the Bible, we see that men and women are equal in the image of God. And then further, to heighten uh, the equality of men and women, where does man come from and where does woman come from? Men, where do you come from? From dust. And where does the woman come from? The rib of the man. You know, Matthew Henry, the great Puritan writer, commenting on Genesis, he says, the reason that God chose to take woman out of the rib of man is for this reason. Woman, women were created from the rib of man to be beside him, not from his head to top him, nor from his feet to be trampled by him, but from under his arm to be protected by him, near to his heart to be loved by him. So Paul is not saying women are inferior, they need to, you know, he doesn't say they need to put up and shut up that they're doormats, nor are they simply to be dominated or controlled by men. What Paul is saying, though, is that men have the onus of the spiritual leadership of their homes, that men are called to lead, and women, their wives, are called to respect their husbands. Probably the clearest definition of the word submit comes from this very passage itself. What does it mean for wives to submit? Well, look at verse 33. This is the summary verse. Paul's like, here's what I've just said. Let me summarize it all over again at the very end. He says, however, let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. See, what we get from Ephesians chapter 5 is men are called to be the spiritual leaders in the family. Paul goes on and he's going to explain that they must be willing to die for their wives, to lay down their life for their wives. And he means that physically, if necessary, but also metaphorically and spiritually. Men are called to lead and to be self-sacrificing for the sake of their wife. Uh, he goes on and he says men are to wash their wives clean, metaphorically, right? Not literally wash their wives' bodies, but wash them clean with what? With the word of God. That's in verse 26. It's a spiritual leadership, men. Meanwhile, women are called, as their husbands live sacrificially, love their wives, cherish them, nourish them with the word of God, women are called to respect, encourage, and submit to the leadership of their husbands. This is God's great call on wives. And wives obey this command, not so they can be mistreated or bossed around or abused by their husbands. Women obey this command because it is an act of submission to Christ himself. Look at verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Notice that as wives respect and encourage their husbands, it's always radically God-centered. It is for the sake of the Lord, as to the Lord. Notice then that Paul shifts in verse 
23, to the reminder that Jesus Christ, see there in verse 23, Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And what does that mean, that Christ is the head of the church? Well, it, on a fundamental level, it means that Jesus serves in the best interest, in the best interest of the body. Jesus shows himself to be the savior of the church. He's always working for the best interest of the body of Christ, you and me. And friends, what that means is in a mysterious way, right? Paul calls this a mystery. Men are called to be the head of the family, serving in the family's best interest. Best interest. Paul goes on to say that as the church submits to Christ in all things, so wives are to submit to their husbands in all things. Look at verse 24. Now, as we Christians submit to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. What does that mean? <laughs> well, of course, everything does not mean that uh, women are supposed to be allowed to be abused or they're supposed to obey their husbands if the husband commands them to sin, right? <laughs> What's the prevailing analogy here? The prevailing analogy is Jesus and the church, right? It's the example is a holiness. As Jesus gives himself for his bride and the church submits and follows him, we understand submission is a sign then of our trust and respect. Okay, so what does this all look like? What does this all look like? I know we're, we're getting into some deep theology and I've probably offended half the congregation, but maybe not. What does this look like? Well, you know, uh, the book of Hebrews will say, submit to your leaders and follow their example. So I will try to, as best I can, uh, say, here's how it's worked out in my marriage to Caroline. Uh, unfortunately, she's not here right now. We have sick kids, but such is the time of the year. But the example I'll give is the way that I see Caroline respecting me, you know, submitting to my leadership to use, you know, the Bible's language as I'm called to submit to Christ. What that means is I'm constantly deferring to the wisdom of Caroline. She's constantly giving me great advice, and I'm always listening to her advice. But ultimately, the weight of leadership falls on me. And oftentimes, what I notice myself doing is trying to make Caroline make decisions that I'm called to make. And I'm trying to shirk my responsibility and put it on her. Instead, what I need to be doing is making sure that Caroline and the kids are my utmost priority. And I am not being selfish, but I am denying myself and looking to her best interest, her growth in the Lord. You know, when Caroline and I do premarital counseling, it's one of our favorite things to do is to counsel uh, people before they get married, especially young people. It's a lot of fun. It's also scary, but it's also really exciting. But we always tell women to look for the first thing in a husband. We always tell women the number one thing they should be looking for in a husband is spiritual maturity. That is to be their top priority. Secondly, and this is, this, you know, I don't know if this, this hopefully will make sense to you, but uh, what Caroline and I have often found is that as wives respect their husbands, they genuinely respect them. Something amazing happens in a husband when he actually gets genuine respect. You know what it is? They actually become worthy of respect. <laughs> they actually become their best selves. Think about it this way. Um, when Caroline and I first got married and I started preaching, um, I wasn't very good at preaching, but Caroline, because she loved me, uh, I, would, I would go to Caroline after every sermon I used to preach, and I would say, how'd I do? 
you know, because I defer to her wisdom. And, you know, blessed Caroline, you know, St. Caroline, you know what she tells me every time I ask her? I still ask her to this day how I do. She always ranks me on a scale of one to 10 for the sermon. But because she's gracious to me, I've never scored below a nine. <laughs> what she tells me is I scored like a 9.5 or a 9.3 or a 9.8. That sounds so much better than a 3 out of 10 or a 5 out of 10. If you just put a 9 point something in front of it, your husband may feel a little bit better. But what I want to suggest to you, and what I've often counseled young couples to realize is, okay, is every one of my sermons a 9 point something? No, that's not the point. What's the point? The point is if I have a residual presence in my life that's constantly encouraging me, that's constantly respecting me. You know what happens? I want to be worthy of that respect. The same thing happens when husbands love and cherish their wife. You can say things, guys, like you've never looked better than you do today. And guess what? You may actually find her better looking now than ever. Because as you encourage one another, you actually call them to be the best version of themselves. I mean, think about the analogy of how we treat kids. Do you tell a kid, well, that, that was terrible. Don't ever try to write your name again. It's illegible. Is that how you teach a kid to write, to write their name? No, you go, oh, that was so good. That was so good. I'm going to tape this drawing and put it on my wall in the office. You encourage that. And your kids grow into that. And friends, in much the same way, you have such a profound influence over your husband by how you speak to him. If you respect him, he may actually grow into that. You know, but too often marriages break down. And why do marriages break down? Often because men use the strength of their biceps, right, to get what they want. Or they just become so passive, they're not existent. And women oftentimes use their tongue to elicit shame in their husbands. Friends, how far from God's design of marriage if that is where our marriages are? Okay, so have I answered every possible scenario of how women are supposed to submit to their husbands, respect them? I'm sure you're thinking of countless hard situations that I haven't spoken to. And here's the thing. I don't know that I'm supposed to counsel every single woman through every difficult marital situation. Instead, I think there's actually a discernible, identifiable group of people that the Bible will tell women to go to. If you were to open up to Titus, the book of Titus, this is Paul's letter to a young pastor named Titus. Interestingly, as Paul is telling Titus how to manage the church, you know what he says? He says, actually, you can go to it. I'll flip over to it right now and read it to you so you know I'm not lying to you. I have read to you Ephesians chapter 5. I've told you what the Word of God says. Okay, what about the countless situations married couples find themselves in? What about the difficult situations? Well, you know what Titus will say? If you go to Titus chapter 2, this is Paul writing to, you know, a pastor named Titus. And he says to Titus, he says, Older women, this is verse 2, verse 3. He says, Older women... Uh, the presbyteidoses in Greek, the older women in the church, are to be reverent in their behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. If you 
uh, women, if you find yourself in a situation that I haven't spoken to, um, I can counsel you, but I would encourage you to also be thinking, who are the older women in Christ who have great marriages that you can go to and say, help me? Titus 2 says the older women in the church are to mentor younger women in marriage. What a great responsibility. What a great resource. Now let's shift to husbands. I have a little bit more of a leg to stand on. Now, what are men called to do for their wives? Uh, this is a radical shift in thinking. If, if you don't know this already, uh, if you look down at Ephesians chapter 5, 22, verse 33, uh, Paul is using a very uh, common way of talking about ethics. So Aristotle used this method, Plato used this method, all of the Greek philosophers of the day would have used this. And when they were kind of giving moral encouragement, telling people how to live their lives, they would use a similar pattern of what does this mean to husbands and wives, kids and their parents, slaves and their uh, masters. Right? So if you look down at Ephesians chapter 5 and then on to verse 6, that's exactly what Paul does. Paul takes a normal frame of reference for, okay, if we were to live ethically, how do husbands and wives treat each other, how do kids and their parents interact, and how do slaves and masters interact? So Paul is taking an understood sort of frame of reference, but he's imbuing it, and this is important, friend, he's imbuing it with a radically Christ-centered approach. The other moral household codes of the day, you know what they would tell husbands? They would say, you know, some of them are horrible. They say things like, you know, uh, your mistress on the side, that's for fun. Your wife is for your legitimate children, but the goal is to not speak to her, right? Your goal should be to speak to your actual wife as little as possible. That's the kind of household code you can read during Paul's day. What Paul does, however, is radically different. And he saves most of his commands for the men in the church. He spends three verses telling wives to submit, but he spends eight to nine verses, the bulk of his energy, telling men how to live. And it sounds nothing like the marriage advice of the day. And it's because Paul has met the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is alive, and he is commanding men to follow him. And so marriage is not just for men's fulfillment or so that the domestic life can be covered. It is for the radical nourishment and cherishment of wives. We may not think this is radical, but for Paul's day, this was radical. So what are men called to do? Well, if you were to look at Ephesians 5, 25 through 33, it's clear men are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church, specifically in giving up his own life. So men, you could say it's a self-sacrificing love, Knock it off with the remote thing. You think that's Christ-like love? <laughs> Notice also, guys, that spiritual growth is the primary goal. It's a radical love. It's a self-denying love. It's a servant leadership, right? If we are called to a uh, role of leadership in the home, guys, never forget Jesus gave himself as our servant, and that's the model he has laid for us. So let's look at what Paul says to the husbands. And guys, whether you are married or hoping to be married, listen up. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. 
He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. If you were to summarize this passage, it's right there in verse 25. Husbands, what are you called to do? You are called to love your wife to the greatest extent that is humanly possible. (laughs) To love your wife, to nourish her, to cherish her, and to wash her clean. You know, Paul is using this image of, you know, a bride and a groom getting, you know, all dolled up, beautifully clean right before the marriage, right right before the wedding. We think about all the, the time and energy people take before they walk down the aisle But notice that Paul is saying the great call on men is to clean their wives with what? Look at verse 26, by the washing of water with the word. He says the great call of Christian men is to love their wives self-sacrificially and also lead them in the word of God to say we are going to follow what God says as a family. But let's be honest, you know, most of the time the great... um, you know that, that great uh, movie, Lord of the Rings? You remember that? Um, and Aragorn is all like, oh, I don't know if I should be the king. I don't know if I can do this. And then his beautiful, you know, elfin girlfriend. <laughs> oh, man, I sound like such a dork right now. Um, <laughs> you know, the elven, what's, what's her name? Arwen. thank you. There's another nerd in the room. Arwen is like, you can do it. And he's like, no, the same weakness flows through my veins. And then she's like, no, you can do this. And then, you know, isn't that amazing that when she believes in him, he actually becomes worthy of belief in him? <laughs> but there's that sense, right, that Aragorn is wrestling with the same weakness of his ancestors, the same blood that failed many generations ago is coursing through him, right? Uh, I think Tolkien was so profound because, you know, that just totally corresponds, I think, men, with our tendency to know why we struggle so much in marriage. Um, you know, and I think it goes all the way back to the very beginning. I mean, later on, Paul's going to quote from Genesis, So this is a pretty good place to start for marriage advice, uh, is the marriage between Adam and Eve. Now, if you were to go to the story of Adam and Eve, everybody knows that story. I know all that, right? Do you know that story? Well, let's do some trivia. When God says, don't eat of that one tree, you can eat every other kind of tree. You can eat all this other kind of fruit, except this one tree, right? You remember that? Remember that? You know, then they eat the fruit. Remember that famous story? Okay, here's the trivia question. Who does God tell that to? Who does God give the word of God to and say, this is the command, don't eat that tree? Who does he tell that to? He tells that to Adam alone. Eve has never even been created yet. The very next verses is when God sees that it's not good for man to be alone, so he makes a helper fit for him. And ladies, don't let that offend you. God is our helper. So there's nothing derogatory about being a helper. Who doesn't want to be a helper? God is our helper. So you could say that it was Adam's spiritual responsibility to tell his wife what? Stop talking to the serpent. (laughs) This is wrong. The serpent tricks, deceives the woman, and she eats. And guess who's around while this is happening? Adam is around. Adam is right there. 
Whose moral responsibility is it to lead the family with the word of God and say, don't do it, honey. We are not doing this. This is wrong. Guys, it is our responsibility. It's our responsibility to spiritually lead our wives and say, we are going to follow the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Instead, what Adam does is he does what? He just shuts down and he goes silent and he gives up his great responsibility of leadership. How many men does that describe today? Passive, silent, non-existent in their homes. Silent when it comes to the word of God and how it pertains to their family. And then when God says, uh, what just happened? How does Adam respond? Oh, the wives know. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? The guy's like, I don't really remember this story. I wonder if the football game started. You know what what Adam says? The woman you gave me tricked me. Blame shifting. The sinful pattern of men is to be passive, to shirk their responsibilities, to be silent, and then when everything falls apart, to find everybody else to blame except themselves. Because who's Adam really blaming? He blames Eve, you know. What am I supposed to do? You know, he's got this nude lady running around asking me to eat stuff. Of course I'm going to do it. <laughs> he blames Eve, and then he does what? He blames God. You gave her to me. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing? <laughs> just how, like, if we get the story of Adam and Eve right, how it just clarifies so much in our marriages. Guys, you are called to say, this is the word of God. The goal is not for me to dominate or control you, but to point you to Christ. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That is self-sacrificing love. This is not self-serving love because Jesus did not come to please himself, but to give himself for us. Verse 26. What was Jesus' goal? to make her holy, to sanctify her, to cleanse her by the washing of water with the word, so that Christ might present us, the church, to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives. Notice that Paul goes on, and he reminds husbands that they are one flesh with their wives. One flesh. So any sense that women are inferior is just foreign to the thought of Christianity because how can you be one flesh with somebody who's your inferior? Far from being your inferior, husbands, you are to see your wife and you as one flesh. And Paul says, you don't treat your own body badly, so treat your wife as you would treat yourself. That is quite the standard. (laughs) You know, Paul goes on and he goes to a Genesis just like I did. Look at verse 30. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I mean, how much more of an intimate relationship could God give husbands and wives? So that then brings up, what does he mean by leaving your father 
and your mother and holding fast to your wife. Well, you know, oftentimes when Caroline and I are, are doing marriage counseling for uh, people who want to get married or, you know, we're talking to newlyweds, um, you know, we often tell them to find spiritual mentors, you know, husbands and wives that they can go to for spiritual advice. But we also warn many young couples uh, to not necessarily go to their own parents for marriage advice. Why do you think that is? Why do you think Caroline and I would say, well, if you're having really hard problems in your marriage, maybe don't go to your own parents? Well, part of it is because here, you know, God seems to think that there should be some kind of change in the nature of the relationship between parents and their children when they get married, but also because we often tell these young couples, no matter what, if you go to your parents and say, my spouse is not treating me right, no matter what, you are always going to be your parents' baby. <laughs> They're always going to take your side, no matter what. And it's going to be hard for them to treat maybe their daughter-in-law or their son-in-law fairly. That doesn't mean young couples are left all alone. Instead, you should be looking for spiritual mentors, looking for people in the church that you respect their marriage. So let me just finish up with this. Husbands, be honest with yourselves right now. You don't have to say it out loud. Assess your marriage for just a second. Are you leading spiritually? Are you loving your wife with all of your heart, forsaking all others? Are you washing her with the water of the word? Are you cherishing her? Are you holding fast to her, treating her as you would your own flesh? Are you like our father Adam, silent, passive, shifting the blame? What might God be calling you to do? Where do you think you need to apologize? What would repentance look like? Friends, these are questions that must be answered, and I'm asking them of myself as much as I am you. So as a finish up, who, who should care? Who should care about marriage? I mean, really, who should care? We all should. If you're still young and hopeful about the prospect of marriage, I implore you, remember this marriage. Ladies, do you know what to look for in a man? Godliness. Guys, do you know what you are called to do in marriage? If you today desire a life of singleness, or if you'll just simply be single for reasons untold, single people, remember that in your unique calling on life, you also resemble Christ in a profound way. But you too can find ways to strengthen and encourage marriage. Wives, was this sermon convicting or encouraging? Are you thinking of older women to go to for help? Are you reorienting your attitude towards your husband, towards Christ? Friends, the reason we apply the gospel to our marriage is because we are Christ's bride. It is a radically Jesus-centered view of marriage. And may our, all of our marriages reflect the hope of the gospel. Let's pray. And Lord, we thank you for the word of God that is able to save, to mature us. Uh, Lord, you know where all of us stand in terms of our marriages. Uh, Lord, where there are flaws and sin, would you have mercy? Would you lead us to repentance and forgiveness? Uh, Father, would we have ears to hear your word? 
Would we hear what it says and nothing else? Lord, would you turn the hearts of the husbands to their wives and the hearts of the wives to the husbands? Lord, we pray for all of those who are engaged or looking to be married. And Father, would you grow them into the men and women you've called them to be? Father, we pray for hope this morning. Hope for our marriages. uh, Hope for those who have to do the autopsy on previous marriages. Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. Forgive us. Give us hope. Father, we pray for those who can't be with us or are in various uh, situations of need. We think of Harry Gilg, Gail Johnston, Marilyn Feeney, Lorraine Hoffman, Paul Deller, Sean McCoy, Noah James, Randy Templeton, and Lynn Toombs. Lord Jesus, have mercy on them. Strengthen their bodies. Lord, give them a hope and a future. Lord Jesus, please. And Lord, we lift you another sister church here in our community. We pray for Hope Presbyterian Church in Rogue Valley and Pastor Brian. Lord, we pray that you would be at the center of all of their worship and church life, that you'd be strengthening Pastor Brian and giving him hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.